<laughs> the transfer window is part of the Daily Record Podcast Network. Subscribe at iTunes or Audio Boom. Good day. Welcome to the Transfer Window Podcast, where we take you inside the biggest deals at the biggest clubs in world football. Last night saw the window slam shut, but as the dust settles, who are the winners and losers in the cutthroat world of the elite game? What happened at Arsenal, the club apparently sinking into the mire as an embattled Arsene Wenger offered a club record €95 million for Thomas Lamar, only to see that deal crumble to ashes? Was the knock-on effect that Arsenal refused to part with Alexis Sanchez? a player seemingly desperate to depart the Emirates and join up with his old gaffer Pep Guardiola. In France, PSG saw off a late move from Barcelona to secure the loan signing of Kylian Mbappe before a permanent deal begins next season. It's a complicated deal and we look at that in detail. In a stunning move, Ross Barkley seemingly rejected Chelsea in favour of warming the bench on Merseyside. We asked the pertinent question, WTF? With the Spanish transfer window closing tonight, will Liverpool's diminutive Brazilian maestro Coutinho go to Barcelona? And amidst the sound and fury, we assess the burning question, who had the most successful transfer window? I'm Johnny McFarlane and I'm delighted to welcome regular guests, transfer mensch Ian McGarry and sports journalist extraordinaire Duncan Castles. Gentlemen, it was a window as notable perhaps for the deals left unsigned as those that passed the muster. Let's start with Thomas Lamar to Arsenal. What was the timeline there? Thomas Lamar to Arsenal. Arsenal agreed a fee um, with uh, Monaco for Lamar around uh, half past one yesterday. They'd earlier agreed to sell Alexis Sanchez to Manchester City. I think um, Simon Mullock did some great work on this um, yesterday. He, he was the guy who broke that the, that fee had been agreed um, at £55 million. Pounds. Um, and that was done about 10 o'clock. And Arsenal's line to Manchester City was, we'll, we'll let them go as long as we get the replacement and we have the replacement lined up. Um, what I find extraordinary about this deal is that um, Arsenal could be pursuing a player like Lamar the whole summer, um, pretty much their top target along with uh, Lacazette. Um, get to the last day, bid far more money than anyone ever expected them to for him, um, but not have a deal in place with the player beforehand, um, which obviously left them with you know, a huge amount of embarrassment with their own supporters, but also left Manchester City in this um, invidious position of missing out on, on the key attacking signing that Pep Guardiola had wanted for, for the entire summer for, to, um, to go for the Premier League with Manchester City. I think it's <clears throat> incredible picking up on that theme, Duncan, that um, a club like Arsenal uh, can target a player like Lamar, who isn't exactly under the radar um, for the entire summer, and yet not speak to the player, stroke his agent, his representatives, his lawyer, to establish, A, does the player want to come to the club? Which some people are saying that he did not want to go to Arsenal. So that's the first thing which is astonishing with regards to the way that they prepare and handle their transfer dealings. Secondly, that if he was in any way reticent about moving to the Emirates, then offer the financial carrot that is often the aspect of any transfer which gets that deal over the line. 
So therefore, in Lamar's case, <clears throat> double his wages from what he's on at Monaco, which would not be difficult, treble his wages, probably. If you're going to pay 92 million pounds for a player, uh, sorry, 95 million euros, then a player expects to be um, given a salary which reflects his transfer value. And in this crazy, crazy market of this summer, you're looking at 200,000 pounds a week. Now, from all intents and purposes, we're told that they offer deals in excess of £300,000 a week to both Mesut Ozil and Alexis Sanchez, both of which were turned down. So Arsenal are clearly in a position financially to make all of that happen. And yet, and yet, with only hours and minutes to go of a transfer window, the key signing, which might just have improved our season, says no. And to rub salt in the wind, did we all see the goal he scored against the Netherlands last night for France? Well, bloody hell, he's a player. And we knew that already. We knew even more after last night. And Arsenal must, and Wenger in particular, is sitting in his office at London Colney this morning with egg all over his face. It's clear that Lamar was the, the, the factor which stopped this deal from ha happening. Arsenal's briefing after it fell through was there wasn't time to complete. But as I said, um, the, the fee was agreed with Monaco at half past one. Three hours later... Uh, the people negotiating the deal were waiting for Lamar to make a decision. It came down purely to Thomas Lamar not wanting to go to Arsenal at that stage in the transfer window. I don't know at this point whether he'd agreed earlier in the window when Arsenal were interested in him to come. And then as interest came from other clubs, Manchester United um, and Liverpool, who bid €80 million Euros and wouldn't go any higher yesterday uh, for the player, he changed his mind and, and, and came to the conclusion he didn't want to go to a club like Arsenal who had recruited so badly and started so badly to the season. Either way, whether he'd given them the nod earlier in the season, the point was you go into that day, if you if you trying to do a deal like that in the final day, <coughs> you have to know the player's going to come to you. It's, it's reminiscent, actually, of um, what happened with David De, De Gea two summers ago, um, the... This, the partial swap move in which De Gea went to Madrid and um, Manchester United were going to take Kaylor Navas on, on Louis van Gaal's uh, recommendation as a replacement. Uh, Real Madrid all, did all the work to get the deal done with Manchester United. They did all the work with the player. That had all been done far in advance. And then they were shocked to discover that although Manchester United had agreed to the sale and the exchange, that they'd done nothing with Kaylor Navis to set up the contract with the goalkeeper that he would be coming to at Manchester United and, and didn't get the paperwork through, as we know, just before the deadline, just failed to get it through on deadline. And it was purely because Manchester United had not done their homework on that deal and not put the, the contractual sides in place with the player. And, and Madrid were shocked. But here you've got another major Premier League club talking about a, you know, not even, it's, 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 you can't even call it a club record deal. It's, it blows their previous um, spending apart. Um, yet, the basics wrong in this. It's, it's appalling. <clears throat> they're not the only um, culpable uh, club in terms of that, though, Duncan. I mean, it's the very fact that we had so much um, frenzied activity uh, through the day yesterday. And look, like, we know that's it's not unusual for that to happen. But, you know, as someone who, who works with clubs um, regarding transfers, um, I, I, I'm continually shocked by the lack of preparation, stroke um, involvement or engagement they have prior to deadline day. It's like someone pushes the panic button 
And I think some managers, to be fair, use this to their advantage because they will go to their chairman or to their chief executive and say, blah, 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 I need this, I need that, you have to sort it out now. Otherwise, we're going to be you know, not contenders, we're going to be relegated. And then, and some clubs cave into that and, and engage in ridiculous fees and, and deals at the very last minute and then claim some kind of you know, hollow victory uh, with regards to getting a player signed. You have had 94 days that to get these deals done. Why are you doing it at ridiculous prices with hours to go? It just doesn't make any sense. And we said on our previous podcast, and uh, Duncan and Graham Hunter both agreed, that Alexis Sanchez could be the title-winning signing for Pep Guardiola in a season where he has to win either the Premier League or Champions League to maintain his reputation and indeed probably his job. And yet, because of, obviously City would blame Arsenal in this case, they are now without that Alexis Sanchez. Arsenal are without Thomas Lamar and nobody's happy, despite the fact that there are unlimited funds available to get these deals done. Yeah, and look, at, I have to put the hands up here. When we did the last podcast, you asked me where, where I thought Thomas Lamar would be going and I said I definitely didn't think he'd be going to Arsenal and that was because, one, because of the fee required, two, because of the other clubs interested and three, because um, Arsene Wenger had said the deal was dead for, the, for as far as he was concerned the week beforehand. <coughs> Which is probably an indication of, why, of what went, partially what went wrong for Arsenal and that they'd, they'd stopped working on the deal. In, yeah. in the preceding days, and then end up, ended up rushing it after making the decision to, to to sell Sanchez on the last day, which is something which, you know, we all knew that Alexis Sanchez wanted to leave Arsenal. We all knew they had a very difficult situation um, to manage there. The, the rational thing, and Manchester City are saying that they, they've been trying all summer to sign the player, is to get that deal out of the way early and then and get your replacement set up. And, and and have have actually have a player in your squad who wants to come to your club before the season starts, training with you and able to contribute to the start of the season instead of having this mishmash squad that they've had, which has has already dropped points and and put in you know basically three embarrassing performances, albeit they they beat Leicester City. I think I think there's another factor here which is interesting. We're just looking at um, I mean we're talking about Manchester City missing out on deals. Talking about Arsenal missing out of deals, Chelsea have missed out on a lot of deals. And I was just looking at the number of transactions um, some of the clubs in the Premier League have done. Manchester City have moved 36 players out this summer, either on loan or sale. Chelsea have moved 48 players out, either on loan or sale. Now, we know that this policy of stockpiling players has worked very well for Chelsea in terms of uh, getting them to... to, to uh, match UEFA financial fair play rules and turn profit and transfer. So it's economically has been successful for them. Is it got to the stage where trying to handle that, that, that sort of input and output of players that aren't actually intended for your first team squad is such a distraction to the administration of Chelsea that they can't get the deals done that actually count to winning titles? That's very Manchester interesting, City. Duncan. That's a very interesting point, especially about the amount of players that you've talked about between City and Chelsea. <clears throat> and also, we could throw in there that the people who, who own those respective clubs are businessmen. And while they indulged uh, their, let's say, their egos and their vanity when first purchasing uh, those respective football clubs, the owners 
I think, have become a lot more uh, ruthless in terms of what that business represents for them now because we haven't seen the um, amount, you know, ludicrous amount spent. I'd say City's investment this summer has been substantial and indeed the highest in the Premier League. I think they're in £210 million in a total £1.47 billion combined spend in the Premier League alone. £3 billion across Europe, I think, or upwards of £3 billion across Europe. So... It's, I think it is. I think you've got people like Ferran Soriano and Chiki Bigeristan, who obviously run Barcelona for a very long time, now under pressure to at least return some um, money from net uh, sales, as it were, as well as uh, purchases. And it's a model we've seen at Chelsea for the last four or five years, which actually, and you know, this might stun some of our listeners, has affected a Net transfer spend for Chelsea in the last three seasons, which averages under £30 million. So when you think about the fees being paid, if Chelsea's net spend is under 30 it shows you how much money they're making from outgoing players. So <clears throat> it may well be the case that the manager of the super clubs, so-called, is now not the centre or never was the centre of transfer negotiations. And his needs have not been met uh, in some ways because the club's administrators are busy doing deals on lesser scale to get players out. Yeah, to get players out and to make a, to make money on on the you know on the side almost. With Manchester City, it's not the same scale. I mean, they're they're buying to win the title, and and I, I my calculation in their spending is over two hundred and forty million, and it would have been over okay. three hundred if they um if they've been able to get Sanchez and some of the other deals they wanted. But they're still they're, they're running the stockpile model. And they're also trying to operate, I think, five. Is it five football clubs that the City Group yeah. now owns around the world? Yeah. Uh, on top of that. So that, that's a lot of extra administration beyond the key task, which, you know, like Abu Dhabi is a business concern. It's, a, it's there for PR purposes. But the ultimate PR goal for them is to win the Champions League. So they are tasking these guys to, to it's not like Chelsea. They are tasking the um Chiki Bergiristan Ferenc Soriano to provide Pep Guardiola with the squad that will win the Premier League and win the Champions League. Chelsea, well we've discussed it so many times in the podcast. They they they, they want to win the Premier League, they want to win the Champions League, but they don't prioritize the managers' um preferences for players when they when they do the recruitment. So with Chelsea, obviously there's been a an interesting couple of moves that they brought in a couple of players, but the the big one was Ross Barkley not going through. That was that was stunning that, that he decided against making that move. What was the inside track on that deal? Well, it, what's bizarre, Johnny, um, is the fact that I understand certainly that um, the fee was agreed with uh, Everton. Um, the personal terms are agreed because if they hadn't been, then the player would not have travelled for a medical, a medical which is now being hotly disputed, despite the fact the uh, major, majority shareholder, Everton, um, I think used social media to confirm that Bartley was on his way to London for a medical. This is a player who Ronald Koeman said the day the transfer window opened that he would 100% leave Everton this summer. Now, when a manager, that's a very unusual statement for a manager to make when a player's under contract, even if he's in the last year of his contract. 100% move. And yet, again, it comes down to hours and minutes before deadline that a club, in this case Chelsea, make the uh, bid for 
which is accepted by Everton and then uh, try to progress the transfer, etc., etc. What we also know is that Bartley is currently suffering from a hamstring injury, which in all likelihood will keep him out until November at the earliest. Now, maybe I'm just being naive here, but if I'm a buying club, why am I going to buy an injured player who cannot play for the first, well, the next three months of the season, pay £35 million for him, put him on a substantial wage in the region of £150,000 a week, and then find out that he might actually aggravate that hamstring injury at some point during his rehab, and he could boot for the season. And I'm £35 million out of pocket to, to, to boot. Now, people are saying, oh, Barkley changed his mind. Well, he didn't change his mind because he accepted the personal terms and travelled for a medical. So clearly what's going on there is, I think, the medical's been failed. And... And the, and the club, Chelsea, have pulled out the deal because they've, the hamstring injury was <clears throat> more serious than they had been led to believe. And therefore, they decided, and themselves, not to progress it. Um, Duncan, you've been, you've been following uh, Bartley sort of through the summer and uh, Spurs' interest and everything else. You, you must have um, had a take on this. Well, look, the, the owner of Everton went on television last night to say that he'd taken the medical... Um, and kind of get, gave an interview in which he essentially said uh, it's a bit of a problem for us. I, I think you, I think you'll come back and train, but we've got lots of players in that position, so it's um, <laughs> I'm not entirely sure. Um, and then Barclays people um, either overnight or in the morning have said that the, the reason he didn't um, he decided not to to sign for Chelsea was because he wanted to decide his future when he was fit. So that's that's the reason, that's the excuse that's coming out of his camp, which seems um, a very strange one, given that he knew he wasn't fit when when he, he went down to um, to London to take the medical. Um, so yeah, I think your theory certainly would be worth uh, testing out. But I mean, what's interesting to me with Chelsea this summer is let's let's take Barclay at his, his agent's word and say that he rejected the deal. And you've got Ross Barclay, Fernando Llorente, who went to Tottenham instead of Chelsea yesterday. And Llorente was a player that um, Conte desperately wanted and wanted to bring in in January as a, as a centre-forward to help the title challenge. Oxlade-Chamberlain, Lukaku, for a minimum of four very high-profile targets have all turned down Chelsea this summer, um, either to go to other clubs or to, to stay at their, their current clubs. And in Bartley's place, a club that, as, we, as we've pointed out, doesn't actually want them anymore. Um, I would suggest there's probably not a coincidence that Chelsea are in the middle of a great conflict with their manager over signings. Um, and they've seen four high-profile players turn them down when they, when they've been <coughs> accepted for them. You know, you, to me, there would be that the players have looked at the situation at Chelsea and said, actually, I don't really fancy going to a club where the manager and the, the ownership can't agree on who they should sign and where I don't know whether the manager will still be there um, at the end of this season. Certainly, uh, look, I, I totally agree on that one, Dunk. I mean, if I were ch- ch- like moving job and someone tipped me the wink that, the guy that's trying to sign me, like the, the manager or the sports editor or whoever, um, is actually about to leave. And I know that I'm his choice and not the choice of the upper management or the next person in, in line for that job. I would choose my own future above some kind of, you know, uh, transient 
circumstance whereby I, I have no idea what's going to happen to me in six months' time. And I think from a player's point of view, if you're at that top level, if you're in the elite level where Chelsea want you, then the last thing you want to do, especially at a club at Chelsea where so many players you know, get lost in the ether um, and then, of course, go on and be very good players elsewhere. I mean, good, good point in case. Mo Salah, who Chelsea signed and he played <clears throat> under 180 minutes um, for in the first team, moves to Roma, plays brilliantly for two seasons and gets a £45 million move to Liverpool. And he's looked sensational uh, in the first three games of the season as well. So you take that as an example, and if you are a player um, like Antonio Candreva, for instance, um, at Inter, who Conte desperately wanted as a, well, basically a replacement for Victor Moses on the right side of the uh, 3-4-3. And instead he gets Sapa Costa uh, from Torino, who is a poor man's Candreva. So it's absolutely correct that, that Chelsea are buying the players without Antonio Conte's decision-making influence uh, choices, whatever you want to call it. On the surface, it look as if they've had a decent window. You know, they've brought in Bakayoko, Rudiker, Zapacosta, Marata. Um, but when you look at the players they've lost, Matic, Diego Costa uh, are the two most important, then you'd have to say that they have not swapped like for like, or indeed they certainly have not upgraded um, those players. Um, Costa scored 23 Premier League goals last season. Now, Murat has looked good, and he's a very good player, but he's still new to the Premier League, whereas Costa was you know, absolutely an old hand come last season. Um, so what happens with, uh, with Chelsea is going to be very interesting in the next two to three months. Um, and the Danny Drinkwater deal, again, we talked about this in a uh, previous podcast. Is he an upgrade on Matic? Well, definitely not. Um, but they're relying on this uh, drink water uh, Kante partnership that works so well for Leicester's uh, Premier League winning season. Although, you know, that being a miracle, Chelsea should not be depending on miracles to win the league. Duncan, you said in the last podcast that you thought it was likely that Antonio Conte might not <coughs> last at Chelsea for much longer. Where do you think his mindset is now as the dust settles on this window, having brought in these two players, Zappa Costa and Drinkwater, at the very end of the window? Well, I mean, yesterday was one of those 14-hour uh, days where you're, you're chasing deals all day long and trying to report them for, for the record and others. So I haven't had a chance to, to check in with, with my, my uh, contacts with Conte now that the window's closed. But my prediction would be that he's not going to be happy. Cause, you know, it's, it's, and it's not a hard prediction to make because he went into this window wanting quality and quantity added to the squad. And as Ian's pointed out, they've, they've managed to lose, uh, for my money, the best striker in the Premier League, best centre forward in the Premier League, Diego Costa. Not, he's not actually left the club yet, but they've lost him as a, as a functioning part of the squad and he will definitely have been good be gone by January if not before if he doesn't go today in the, in the last day of the, um, the Spanish window and they've handed Nemanja Matic to a title rival um, they've added some bodies but 
it's nowhere near what Conte was looking for. He hasn't filled all the positions he wanted filled, and he hasn't got most of the players that he wanted for those positions. So I'd be amazed if he says, oh, well, thank you very much. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm delighted with this. He might come out in a press conference and say, yes, I'm, I'm, uh, we'll, we'll, uh, I carry on and, um, and I do my best with, uh, with this team. But um, he won't be saying, I'd be amazed if in the background he said, thank you very much. This That's is exactly what I wanted, Roman. And um, yeah. we're going to win the Champions League now. This is, this is classic Chelsea. We've seen this you know, in the very recent past and in the season after Jose Mourinho won his personally his third Premier League title with Chelsea. He went to the uh, people who administered transfers um, very early before the window even opened and said, next season, we need to compete for Champions League and Premier League. We need to upgrade, not just add, but upgrade the quality of our squad. They failed to deliver the targets. He was sacked in, I think it was November, when Chelsea were 16th in the Premier League. Conte is in, found himself in a similar position. It's an invidious one. He's said exactly the same thing to Marina Gunnarskaya, uh, the uh, chief executive um, of Chelsea, um, and to Michael Eminal, the sport director. And instead, they provided them with lesser quality players than the ones that they've got rid of and set them up upgrades. And it's now in a season where he has European football, not Europa League, Champions League, and a Premier League title to defend, and he's not been given the tools in his eyes with which to do that. Now, I've said it before on this podcast, I will say it to the end, if you give players an excuse to fail, they will fail because they can point the finger of blame at someone else. Coaches will do the same. Conti goes into this season, or sort of continues this season, feeling that he's been let down and undermined in the transfer window. He will say, it's not my fault if we don't win the Premier League or Champions League. And in doing so, if things go very bad, either Roman Abramovich will pull the trigger or Antonio Conte will uh, take the, the fall himself and leave. So very, very few interesting weeks and months ahead for Chelsea. Moving from uh, London to Liverpool, guys, the Spanish transfer window is obviously closing tonight. It's a day after the, the um, Premier League transfer window we saw closed last night. Will Phil Coutinho move to Barcelona, do you think? Well, as of yesterday, his camp were extremely anxious that the deal was not going to go through. Um, the, what their, their briefing was that Liverpool had reneged on the agreement they'd made that they would sell um, Coutinho for 160 million euros um, on the condition that they were allowed to sign a replacement, which they did in Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain. Um, what time were we talking there? About uh, late afternoon, that was the late afternoon, early evening, that was the word from the camp. They, they haven't given up, I'm under, I understand, and they're going to have another go today and see if they can push the deal through. But the, the additional thing that happened, not yesterday, but the day before, which, which, which definitely feeds into the Coutinho situation, is that Barcelona made a very late attempt to hijack Kylian Mbappe's transfer to PSG. The reason, the reason they were able to do this was because PSG had had the deal in place with the player completely for several weeks. Um, Monaco had accepted that he would go there. Uh, and they basically had spent the time trying to 
structure the financing of the transfer in a way that would allow them to uh, avoid an FFP penalty at the end of the season. And by doing so, they hadn't actually secured the player, which left the greatest talent still available um, in the current market, still on the market as far as Barcelona were concerned. So Barcelona tried to step in, um, made a lot of progress to the, the point where on Wednesday, people negotiating that, um, that potential transfer between Barcelona and Monaco for, for Mbappe felt the deal was going to go through and Barcelona were going to take him. They'd prepared a jet to fly him from France to Catalonia to take a medical yesterday morning. However, that kicked PSG into action. Um, they, they went, stopped the deal from happening, secured Mbappe, got an agreement um, with Monaco in which they would uh, take the player on loan, but have a compulsory uh, buy option for next season, um, which allows them to shift the cost of the transfer fee um, one year on and hopefully avoid FFP and, and um, announce the transfer, I think, around 7 o'clock last night. So it went through. There's two things, Duncan, I think we, we should be aware of um, with regards to that late Barcelona move. I think undoubtedly it suggests that there is at least a modicum of uh, fear stroke um, reticence in the Barcelona camp that Coutinho will join them. That, because I'm pretty sure Mbappe and Coutinho would not be an option for Barcelona financially. Um, Absolutely. And I think, secondly, um, Liverpool's stance will have hardened. Uh, having seen Alexis Sanchez be told, you will not leave because we cannot secure a replacement. Also, I think even a, you know, a blind man would agree that Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain is not a like-for-like replacement for Felipe Coutinho. Um, and therefore, where does, where, where does Coutinho go from here? Um, now, I'll throw a span on the works here, um, and that is Thomas Lamar. This is a player who has turned down an offer from Arsenal, having a fee agreed. He is not going to Liverpool uh, because they didn't bid enough, and therefore that would allow, for, I think, that was the like-for-like -like replacement for, for Coutinho. So does Coutinho stay at Liverpool, and does Lamar go to Barcelona? Look, it's definitely a potential option for Barcelona. And, you know, what we know is that Barcelona are scrambling around the transfer market to try and provide their fans with another signing um, to diminish the damage of lo losing Neymar to PSG. And that's obviously part of the attraction of, of, uh, of trying to take Mbappe from PSG was the sweet revenge of, of taking their, their second headline sign signing of the summer after they'd, uh, they'd lost Neymar to PSG against their will. And there's absolutely no love loss between those clubs, as we can see from the, the legal letters that have been flying between them and from PSG's um, intervention when Barcelona were going to sign Seri from Nice um, at the release yeah. clause fee. PSG came in and, and, and jacked the price up and, and, and stopped that deal from happening. Um, but yeah, look, Barcelona, are, they, they want to provide the fans with something. And... Absolutely, it's not. It's not an impossibility. If, if they like Thomas Lamar, they could go and give Monaco the the price that Arsenal offered them, perhaps even a little bit less money. Um, and and I, I suspect that Thomas Lamar would accept that deal. 
Um, we might have had reservations about going to Arsenal, but um, even Barcelona in their current state, I think, would be an attraction to him if if that's where Barcelona go today. Well, I mean, I'm lucky enough to still be in Spain at the moment, and I've I've been through the Spanish sport dailies this morning, guys, and uh, it's safe to say that Barcelona being compared with Arsenal in terms of the donkey of the transfer window uh, images uh, can purport. And <clears throat> despite the fact that some of the Catalonia-based uh, newspapers uh, remain convinced that Coutinho will come, uh, I personally am looking at the situation now where FSG categorically said he will not be sold. Now, I totally agree with Duncan. I do think they've been negotiating uh, regardless of the public statement because they wanted to test just how much uh, Barcelona were willing to pay for a player that they secured for around, I think, £11.5 million in the end. They, they paid for into Milan for him. Uh, it's a massive profit. And, um, but, as I said before, the fact that Arsenal stood firm and said Sanchez will not go because we can't get a replacement, will Liverpool stand firm and say we can't, we will not allow Coutinho to go because we can't get a light for a replacement for him? And that puts Barcelona uh, very much in much greater mire than they were in yesterday, even. And they will be definitely spending in the next few hours. It will be very interesting to see what Barcelona do um, over the next 12 hours. Yeah, look, I think Liverpool are, when you step back and look at what they've done in this window, in the light, you know, the light of the, 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 the day after the final, the deadline day, they're, they're only the fifth highest spenders. They've only spent around 90 million in total and transfer fees. And this is a window in which they, they, they went in briefing the press that it was going to be their biggest spend ever. And they, they, they go to 150 million and they would try and get players like Mbappe. That's what they started off in the window talking about. Their net spends around 50 million. They missed out on Van Dyke um, last night, which, which a lot of their fans expected to come through um, yesterday. So, in terms of the PR position, they're not, you're right, they're not in a good position if they do decide to, to cave in on Coutinho uh, or meet the agreement they, they've made um, behind the scenes with, with the player and with Barcelona. Um, there's also another interpretation, and, and, and Liverpool have been clear in briefing the, the press throughout this that they wouldn't sell the player, and, and FSG went on, on record to say they wouldn't sell the player. It could be that when they were having this discussion with Barcelona and Coutinho that they, they were quite happy to further embarrass um, the pair of them, uh, say, yes, we'll let this deal go through um, on Friday, um, just calm down and, and uh, keep quiet, don't say anything to the press. Um, uh, but you've got a letter of replacement, and then they've uh, now got to the stage where um, the, the Coutinho is stuck, Barcelona are stuck, uh, and they don't have to sell. So you, it could have been a Machiavellian element to these discussions. <coughs> really. place, place the people who've given them a yeah. hard time this summer into, into a difficult situation at the end of it. On that point, Duncan, uh, I think it's been very, uh, very interesting to see the people, and you know, we've got to be, um, you know, let's just let's sort of be very clear or claro, as you say here on this. The people who have been most vehemently denying continue will be sold in the press are to me the people who are most closely linked to Liverpool, and by that I mean the club itself. So, if Liverpool were to turn turtle <clears throat> and then sell continue, <clears throat> they would put those people in a very embarrassing, humiliating situation. And the 
all sort of hell on earth would then rain down on Liverpool. Not just from the fans, because obviously Coutinho is their favourite and best player, but from those people in the press who they trust most to brief as well. And I'm not sure that Liverpool can afford to lose that amount of face, that amount of friends and that amount of influence. Um, so your Machiavellian theory, I think, is very interesting because um, Coutinho, as we know already, is not the kind of player that Suarez He's not chippy. He's not arrogant. He doesn't just go out and say, you know, I'm, I, I'm never playing for this club again because I need to move to Barcelona. Coutinho is a good lad. He's a nice boy. He likes to do things the right way. When he put his transfer request in, it was very much, not forced, I would say, but it was the last sort of resort for the player personally to have to do that through his representatives. And if Coutinho has to come back and play for Liverpool for one more season on, on a verbal agreement with the club and with Jurgen Klopp that they will openly negotiate with Barcelona at this time next year, then I think Coutinho will come back and he'll play very well for Liverpool. And judging by his goal for Brazil last night, that's some back injury he's got because if he can play that with a back injury, just think what he can do when he's fully fit. It's absolutely clear that Coutinho went to Brazil, um, had the uh, had the miracle recovery from his back injury, played that game, fully expecting to be joining Barcelona. You know, yeah. That was what his agents had told him was going to happen. So there is the fall if if it doesn't go through, the fallout fallout of that has to be dealt with by Liverpool and by Philippe Coutinho, which is going to be an interesting situation in itself. But all this stuff where, where Liverpool briefing the press saying they weren't going to sell, in Coutinho's head, so that that situation has to be resolved one way or another, whether he stays at the club or whether he gets his move. I think a factor in this window that we've not seen before is the, is the, the cleverness with which Spain has has managed to push their deadline. You know, not We've seen... We've seen uh, uh, countries have an hour extra at times and, and the Premier League likes to give its clubs three hours extra um, to push deals through um, on deadline day, I think just to keep Sky going through the night. Um, but Spain have managed to get a, a whole 24 hours added to their window this summer, which allows, and, and you know this is the talk amongst agents yesterday, was it allowed Spanish clubs a, a major advantage um, in terms of discussing deals for these players because the, the players weren't if, if they had to, if they were being offered to go to England they had to make a decision then and there and, and most of them were involved in international matches so they, they had other things in their mind. If Spain was a possibility they could go and play their game uh, and wait till today and see how things panned out and and um, and have another go at it. So so the Spanish have effectively allowed themselves um, a weapon over every other uh, European football nation, which, given what the transfer window was set up for, given the reason it exists was to unify across countries and um, and to take trading out of uh, the season proper as much as possible, it's something that FIFA might want to have a look at. And, you know, <clears throat> it's true, Duncan. I'd be interested to know exactly what circumstances granted Spain this extra 24 hours, um, because it is highly unusual. Now, just off the top of my head, I know that there are several public holidays during the, the summer months in Spain where everyone, and I mean everyone, gets the day off. Um, even Zizou might have got a day off this summer. Um, and I wonder if they've specifically requested 24 hours extra as an amalgamated effect of that. Um, but I said it would be interesting to actually find out, and um, I shall do my homework while I'm here. Make some calls to uh, 
the uh, Spanish Football Association and find out. And then on our next podcast, I will explain it in depth. Obviously, the transfer window slammed shut. But who's had the best window? Who do you assess has done the, the, the most successful amount of deals and the, the best deals? Well, for, for me, Johnny, um, one of the big eye-openers was uh, Gregor Krzyzowiak to, um from PSG to West Brom. <clears throat> they lost an elegant, intelligent, ball-playing midfielder whose passes were almost 100% accurate in <clears throat> Darren Fletcher and replaced him with one of the most elegant ball-passing midfielders in European football and all under the noses of the so-called top six clubs. And you know, if you're out there looking for your all-round midfielder, this guy is it. And he plays with passion. He's a warrior. Uh, I think Graham Hunter referred to this in our previous podcast. This is a guy who has been pushed out of PSG because of the incredible signings they've been making. But fair play at West Brom, a club who've gone totally under the radar, snapped a guy up. And then I even saw him on TV saying the most unlikely words I've ever heard. It's a dream come true to play for West Bromwich of Albion. And I'm thinking, is this actually happening? It's, it's sensational. Absolutely sensational. And I do, I do think that the top six clubs have a little bit to learn from a club like West Brom. And Duncan, I think you will be regaling Swansea City for what they've done. Yeah, look, I agree. I think West Brom have, have, have done very well in this window. And, you know, the, the other element they've done well with is hanging on to Johnny Evans, who mm. I, I, I thought Absolutely. was a very astute signing that um, that Manchester City were trying to make there and getting a homegrown centre-back um, <coughs> who's, who's very much Premier League ready and can play the ball. And, and you know, the, those those kind of players are a real premium these days. Um, and, and West Brom managed to resist that and hold on to him. And, and I don't think, we'll see, but I don't think with any great sense of despair on Johnny Evans' part, I don't think they've got a Virgil van Dijk situation on their hands. No. I think he'll, he'll carry on and play well for them. Swansea, yes. I mean, Swansea, Swansea have managed the, the transfer fee they managed to get from Everton for Sigurdsson is, is beyond belief. Um, <laughs> if you could imagine a, a player, I mean, Gilfie Sigerson is a good footballer, but he's not a, a footballer of worth that transfer fee. Um, and then they, they've they managed to sneak in Renato Sanchez on a loan from Bayern Munich. This this is the player that that every top club in Europe was falling over themselves to try and sign. Not twelve months ago, but eighteen months ago, you know. Bayern Munich signed that player from Benfica in direct competition to Manchester United, Real Madrid, um, top Italian clubs, before, long before the window even opened to make sure they got hold of him. And, OK, he, he did not have a good first season at Bayern Munich. Um, not by any stretch of the imagination did he have a good first season. Carlo Ancelotti didn't want him as part of his plans this season. But Swansea City have, have now ended up without paying a transfer fee with, with essentially the top young talent of the last transfer window in the ranks, which is stunning. <laughs> um, whether they've got a balanced squad that, that uh, is going to get to the top end of the table, I don't know. But they should certainly have enough to, um, to survive in the Premier League, which is pretty much the target for Swansea City. So, yeah, congratulations to them. I think and to be fair as well, Duncan, um, <clears throat> selling Llorente, who was obviously very unhappy at Swansea, 
and bringing back fans' favourite and a player who made his um, reputation at Swansea City, Wilfried Boney, looks on the face of it to be a fit. I mean, we talk about Chelsea not upgrading. I'm not saying Boney's an upgrade on Llorente, but Llorente was not playing and not scoring goals. Whereas in Boney, you've got someone who's hungry, who has a genuine affection for the club, who, in all intents and purposes, from the way they've released it on social media, looks to me to be a very happy boy. Uh, to be back at Swansea City. Mm. And you can be sure he'll be trying his hardest to score goals for them. So, again, uh, top marks to Paul Clement for the way that they've conducted their business. And I agree with the Gilfie Sigurdsson um, reference that Duncan made. Never a £50 million player, but then again, now it was Kyle Walker. So, that's just sums up the insanity of this window. Okay, guys, uh, we move on to the quickfire rounds. We're going to have a look at the winners and losers in this transfer window. So I'll start with you, Duncan. Tottenham. Uh, score draw for Tottenham. <laughs> Steal me. <laughs> Ian, Chelsea. Losers. Duncan, Manchester City. Uh, just a scrape to 1-0 win. Ian, Barcelona. Lose, 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 lose. Duncan, Liverpool. Liverpool, well, we need to see what happens today, but um, they didn't do what they intended to do in this window, so losers. And to you both, but I'll start with Ian, Manchester United. Winners. Yeah, definitely winners. I, I mean, we were talking about who, uh, who'd had a good transfer window. I'd say that they've not done what they wanted to do in this window. They've not got everything that the manager wanted. But again, they've added quality players and they've, and they've, you know, they've been very surgical in their work again. Um, so you compare that squad to where it was two years ago when, when Jose Mourinho arrived. Um, they still lots of work to do to get it to where he wants it to be, but it's vastly improved. Yeah, and, and also I think it's significant that of the top six clubs, United were the only one who weren't frenziedly going about trying to do last-minute business because they've obviously got a coach uh, who is content with the squad and who looked at that market yesterday and thought, I'm not interested because it's just too crazy. I'm not going to get involved. and I'm not going to upset the players I have currently in my squad by going out and trying to spend silly money on the last day. Instead, I will work with what I've got, I will coach them, and let's see where that goes. Yeah, as we said in the window, uh, on, the, on the window podcast of the day of the day beforehand, no ins and outs was the briefing from Man United, and, the, and it was no ins and outs on the final day. Um, and they, you, know, you look at someone like Thomas Lamar, that's a player that Jose Mourinho was interested in signing when the asking price was 60 million, but when it goes to 95 million, that's a hard, it's a very hard ask. It's a very hard ask, even in today's market. So, Johnny, on <clears throat> terms of winners, losers, I'm going to stick my neck out and go back to what I said before. I think before the end of the day, we will see a Barcelona bid for Thomas Lamar. Because um, my feeling now, my gut instinct is that Liverpool will not sell Filipe uh, Coutinho in this window. And Barcelona are definitely desperate, Dan, when it comes to getting someone in. Well, neck on the line, reputation on the line. That's what we do here at the transfer window. That's all from us. But remember, just as one transfer window closes, we look forward to another one opening in January. We'll be back next week to continue to look at the biggest deals at the biggest clubs in world football. In the meantime, if you have any feedback, banter, or anything else you want to throw at us, you can follow us on Twitter at Johnny R. McFarlane, at Duncan Castles, and rather bizarrely, at Garbozju for Mr. McGarry. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe so you get it as soon as it becomes available. And if you enjoy our work, don't forget to rate us too. Thanks for listening.